The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Thanks for listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Pure joy for Georgie. Mihailovic makes his mark, a goal on his debut. They get forward, the ball gets in between the lines, the ball turns over, Nick Lima pushes it forward. Now you've got two, three, four runners. Corey Baird with a great look, but Mihailovic, first time, if he takes a touch, it closes down the angle. Corey Baird, perfect pace, but Mihailovic having a great January in 2019. And you will always remember your first. What a moment for the 20-year-old kid from the Chicago Towers. Really good tackle from Lima. The cross two, and there's the second goal. Nick Lima made it happen, but it's a walk in the park for Walker Zimmerman, who keeps on scoring goals. Special as always is uh, Jonathan Lewis. A pretty special move, and a special moment for Christian Ramirez. Christian Ramirez, his entire career, his entire life, he's been a goal scorer. Hello everyone, my name is Steven Jodder and welcome to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast. Joining me today are Manka Fai and Joseph Lowry. This week is all about the U.S. men's national team. Please make sure you follow the show on Twitter, Uncle Sam's Soccer Pod. Make sure you subscribe to all the podcast platforms out there. Give us a five-star rating. Now, let's get to today's show. Alrighty, boys, you ready to talk about a game that less than 10,000 people attended? Yeah, but you know who was there? Me. Not me. <laughs> me. I was there. It was fun. Not a, not you know not the best crowd, but I think a good game that we can drop. Joseph, an though. entire side was empty. It's a football stadium, Armand. Yeah, but like. Still, were you part of the yeah, press? Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. Yeah, I was up on the box, so okay, it was even more apparent from up there. Right, but we'll talk about the game, listeners. Don't worry. Uh, uh did you were the the players asked about the attendance whatsoever? I know Burhalter commented something saying it wasn't in his control, and you know his focus is on the field. Blah blah blah. But did did anybody bother to ask any of the players? Uh, I don't. Th- think so i think most of the presumed responses i mean yeah i guess that's a danger no i don't think any of the players were asked uh, although i don't think they would have given any uh super specific answers either that was uh, disappointing to see to be honest but i mean i mean well, I, at least expected. ten thousand. at least ten thousand. you know like when we got when you guys were sending out the uh 
text about, you know, when Kevin Baxter tweeted that U.S. spokesman said 6,000, more than 6,000. It's like, is that like a brag? He's saying, wow, we sold more than 6,000 tickets? Like, that's when you knew, like, oh, going up against the Royal Rumble? Like, mm, I don't know if Phoenix is the best place for that. But then Joseph wouldn't be able to go. So we're kind of a weird conundrum. That's right. It's a paradox. Well, Lexi Lawless tweeted out, the U.S. men's national team doesn't deserve better crowds, attention, or respect. That is earned, and much of it was lost in 2017 and 2018. It is up to Greg Berhalter and this new cycle players to earn it back. Um, He's not wrong there. Um, But, you know, I I think it's not the fact that U.S. men's national team deserves better crowds, the attention, respect. Much of it was lost due to them. But for some reason, we still don't put enough blame on the federation or even the players like uh, why do all the players from 2017 get a pass why are we going to put more expectation on these players but again look we had a 3-0 result here joseph lowry was there what do we open up with again the same topic that we've been talking about for the last 18 months what they missing the world cup yeah it uh, always goes back to that and uh joseph Armand, Jake, and I, in our uh, text, just talking about the game as you were there, uh, I think it was you, Armand, that brought up, isn't that funny? Someone, uh, some people thought missing the World Cup was going to be a good thing. Yeah, because, I mean, you uh, on Twitter, I was reading some things, and people were like, yeah, you know, if the U.S. missed the World Cup, might be a good thing. might be a complete revamp of the cycle or whatever. Um, I mean, as evident as we saw and as we have been seeing it, it Kind of, I mean, look, it, it led to, you know, more people, like, paying attention to the presidential elections, but did it actually matter in the end? I'm not sure. Um, to me, it was the worst thing that could happen to U.S. soccer as a whole because you're sitting here. No one cares about the U.S. men's national team playing, except for us. That's why we're talking about it and our listeners because, you know, uh, y'all, like, y'all enjoy it as well. But, I mean, outside of us, I mean, I feel like not a lot of people knew. I mean, did – I'm not sure that sports center pick it up or anything. I don't think it was a big deal. I think people honestly didn't realize that the U.S. was playing today or yesterday. Excuse me. Yeah, and I think part of the you know the reasoning behind thinking missing the World Cup could have potentially been a good thing in hindsight, especially it's it's super naive, right, to think that that was going to spur on or to hope that that was going to spur on the change within the federation, the systemic change that you know so many of us want to see. Uh, so yeah, I think. I absolutely agree that missing the World Cup had little to no benefit in hindsight, and it, it probably set set back much more than it had any actual change. And it, it sets back, I think, the next – like I think when we get to year 10 of the setback, I think you'll notice it more so than you see it at years one and two. Because at the moment, youth soccer, you don't feel the ripples effect of missing out the World Cup. We don't see the that category of in-between – the five and 12 year olds get inspired by seeing their countrymen out on that field. Like think about the inspiration the women are going to bring to young girls here in this upcoming year, because they will be at the world cup and young girls are going to sit there and be inspired. Maybe men are too, but when you see yourself and you see yourself potentially doing what they're doing, whoever it may be, men or women, it's inspirational 
we're going to miss that because nobody qualified for the 2018 World Cup. And who knows what the U.S. would have done, okay? Who knows? It's whatever. But, Joseph, you were at the game. Listeners, you heard the highlights from Taylor Twelman and uh, play-by-play guy Adrian Healy. Joseph, what, what were your initial thoughts post-match? You know, you know, my initial thoughts were almost cautious optimism, I guess. So, I mean, first you have to start with the the fact that they were playing, the U.S. was playing against a, a pretty weak Panama team. So I think that has to be said as a disclaimer before we get into any any other aspects of the game. But you know, I was... I really enjoyed seeing the contrast in in style and just overall team cohesion for the U.S. compared to what we've seen more recently under Dave Sterikin. Now we have a full time coach and you know a guy that that knows how to how to coach and how to set up a team uh, to be somewhat dangerous tactically. And I, I enjoyed just from a tactical perspective watching a team play some interesting soccer. It's it's funny because. I feel like we haven't seen a tactical performance like this for a long time, no? Like even under Bruce Arena, it didn't seem all so, you know, t- like tactical in terms of this that. Like there wasn't like an innovative, you know, tactical style. And with Jurgen Klinsmann, the players were confused that no idea what the hell was going on 90% of the time. I mean, you had them lining up for a 3-5-2 like 2 days before. I mean, the earliest I the earliest I can think, you know, seeing a, a, a performance that was very rigid in tactics was that USA Mexico game, uh, where I was really happy with Bruce Arena getting that draw when they ran that three four three and Bradley had that like fifty yard chip, uh, to you know give him that one one draw. But I mean, for the first time, in a, it feels like forever we see a team with I think like, were you saying Joseph a tactical identity. You know, they they aren't, you know, acting lost and confused. Under Sarah Can, there wasn't any tactical identity. We all know this. They're just out there playing, you know, having fun, you know, being soccer, you know. Oh, I love soccer, this and that. But with Burhalt, there's a sense of tactical direction that we haven't seen from a U.S. men's national team in such a long time. You saw, you know, what they had instructions, identity. And I feel like, you know, fans, writers are like, whoa, 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 like tactics? Like, this is a thing? Like, what's going on here? And I think that's why, you know, some people are, you know, really excited about what they saw. Because for the first time in 12, 18, whatever, however long months, we're seeing some sort of tactical identity with the U.S. men's national team. Well, I, I'm going to be a little bit different. What was the Federation doing last year? Why did we not get Greg Berhalter at the beginning of the fall friendlies when we were playing Mexico, Brazil, Italy? Those friendlies were meaningless. We see nothing from that. Greg Berhalter clearly has a plan in mind. The fact that the Federation did not decide to hire him earlier is it's just pure stupidity from the Federation. We could have had the chance to see the European players come in on their debut under Greg Berhalter and see something. But we're going to miss the fact that Greg Berhalter had... An interesting dynamic. He saw something and he wanted to try it out. Greg Berhalter becomes the third U.S. men's national team head coach in the modern era to win in his managerial debut. You know who the last one was, Armand? Bob Bradley? Bob Bradley, a 3-1 win versus Denmark in 2007. 
Now, Joseph, who was the first manager to win in his debut? Oh, gosh, I don't know. You weren't even born. Promise you that. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez. It was in the press release of the game yesterday, but I can't even remember. Bora Milutinovic, I butchered that. One nail win versus Uruguay, May 5th, 1991. But to me, wh- why are we waiting for, waited those, you know, what did we do the last three months when we had the chance to put young guys, Burhalter, and against better competition? No, we had to play, what, the 71st team in the FIFA rankings? Panama in front of less than 10,000 people. Yeah, this is a great look. Great, great look. Well done, U.S. <laughs> soccer. Fantastic. Round of applause. I mean, what smart people you are for putting a team, a C team, with a new manager in a football stadium with half the stadium closed, and then it, it, it looks like a USL game in the middle of the summer when the team is absolutely a joke. That's what it felt like watching yesterday, and the players were great. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting to see them play because every player seemed to have a job. It's like they suddenly understood what their role was on the pitch. And it, when's the last time we can honestly say, "Wow, hey, I knew, I I understood what their plan was." Armand Joseph, when was the last time you could honestly say U.S. Men's National Team had a plan? I'm telling you, I would say U.S. at Mexico, June 11th. I want to say 2016, 2017, that 1-1 one, one draw with Michael Bradley. That's, that's the last time I feel like they had a plan, you know, to counter Mexico's 4-3-3 to win the 3-4-3. That's the last yeah. time I could think of anything. Yeah, the, my answer is not recently, Stephen. Uh, Greg Berhalter, guys. Do you guys like the, the system that he ran, this Pep Guardiola-esque movement, high press, lots of passing, you know, this the system – that seems to be very fluid and and it changes on the dime when they go forward and when they defend. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed uh, watching, watching Berhalter's system. I think like you were mentioning, it was, it was very clear that the players had specific roles in, in talking with some of the players leading up to the game. And then again, after the game on Sunday, I think it was very clear in their comments uh, to, in the responses to questions that they had very specific tasks. You know, the wingers, the responsibility was to try to stretch the back line and a lot of times to stay wide, but you know, occasionally they would, they would tuck inside at specific moments, you know, uh, Nick Lima's role sort of as that, uh, interior fullback, you know, number six alongside Bradley, he clearly had some very defined tactical instructions. And, you know, I think that's true for every player. So that was refreshing to see. And, you know, it was enjoyable to watch. I I agree with Joseph. I, I think that Nick Lima wrinkle of him going into midfield has given every MLS and US men's national team writer the right to call Greg Berhalter Guardiola. Um, I think I've seen that comparison at least eight times now, which I just want to say, like, hold your horses. Uh, you're playing against a Panama like F team or something like that. And, you know, like it's, it's encouraging to see um, as I think, I don't know if you tweet this out and Matt Doyle, but I know like, one of you guys did where, you know, it, it's, it's a picture of the three guy of the three back line with Lovitz, you know, being more central. And then you have Lima just pushed into the midfield. And I mean, you have to kind of make that jump to say, hey, it's kind of Guardiola-esque. I mean, we can calm down by saying Burhalter is next Guardiola because they both you know, are bald and, you know, um, 
they both you know, play invert fullbacks, but it's an interesting wrinkle that we saw early. I think, Steven, I texted you like within the second minute. I was like, this seems really Guardiola-esque in terms of the way they, the way they were playing. And, you know, I like what Greg Berhal does. I mean, I think we talked about how we never thought that he was the worst, the worst hire, but just the way USSF was doing things. He presents something tactically, and he added some wrinkles um, in, in the match. I mean, I didn't... I enjoyed what I saw. I honestly, for the first time in a very long time, I enjoyed watching U.S. soccer. It wasn't like Dave Sarakan. I, I truly enjoyed it. And I think Berhalter, um, he's going he's gonna to have to have more wrinkles because, man, this is not the best we're going to see this team. These are MLS players. There's going to be plenty of players that are better who are going to make the system even look better. So I'm waiting to see that before I make my final judgment. Yeah, and Armand, we, we keep talking about like these individual wrinkle, wrinkles that Berhalter puts in. And I think it's it's really interesting that that's the perception of of uh, Berhalter's tactics is that you know he he throws in these things, these individual maybe specific tactics because it'll be really fun to see or I guess it'll be interesting to see you know maybe against Costa Rica and then again in March do we see do we see this inverted fullback again do we see something completely different is that is that what we get in Berhalter is that the sort of constantly evolving constantly changing sort of tactics that we're going to see or is it going to be a little bit more rigid i mean obviously in columbus he did throw in some tweaks here and there you know maybe he switched to a 442 or i know he has played with a little bit of an inverted fullback before but i think it gives me it interests me and i know that i'm far more nerdy about this than than 99 of other people but it interests me to see sort of what what the next game is going to look like look like and then the next game and then the next game so i think i think in that small way that's that's a win for the u.s national team i uh yeah sorry steve i just want to interject um my ultimate question is i mean specifically these invert uh, is invert fullbacks the right word or more i guess centralized fullbacks you no know, drifting against the midfield I think we're still uh, I mean, trying to figure out the right word for yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know the right word because I think Pep said inverted or something like that, and everyone's like jumping on that because you no know, Pep Guardiola is God. Uh, but I'm interested to see if this is because it's interesting, right? Because how many players that are fullbacks does the U.S. Men's National Team have? And I'm not. I'm just not a knock on Nick Lima. He played outstanding that that night. But against top teams, I don't see that you know being the most ideal person. You know, having Nick Lima start and drift into the midfield uh, specifically. How I don't know if U.S. and you know, call me crazy. I don't know if the U.S. has a um, a truly technical right or left back that can play that role. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. And I'll, to counter that, I'll pose this question: Do you guys think that Tyler Adams is is an option for that sort of hybrid outside inside midfielder position? I, I would think him, and you know what? Um, I, I know Steven was about to say something, and we totally just hijacked it. But I think this gives life to Kel Nacosta. Now, call me crazy, but Kel Nacosta plays you know box-to-box mid. He's had experience playing left back and outside back. If this is a system Burhalter really wants to use, if you're Kel Nacosta and you're watching this, and Joseph, remember, we both mentioned that this training camp was huge for Kel Nacosta, and what happened? He got sent home. Uh, you know, Berhalter said, you know, he's maybe a little out of shape and, you know, he made his little tactical work. But if I'm watching this, I'm Kellen Costa. I'm saying I've done this before. Mm-hmm. I've literally been a left back 
uh, in some matches for FC Dallas and under Jurgen and under Bruce Arena. And I play center mid. Why am I not in the picture for this? You know, this is something if I'm, you know, like the Tyler Adams, I agree. I think Tyler Adams is a perfect option. But if I'm Kellen Acosta, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, if you're going to play this way, I can play this way. I'll work my tail off to get to that point. And that's why I'm intrigued, you know, to see what he does in that role. Yeah, I think you make a fair point, honestly. I, w- I wouldn't be surprised to see him at some point, if he can work his way back into the national team picture, that is. So in a span of, what, six weeks, Greg Berhalter is Pep Guardiola? Is that is that a conclusion here? No, that's no. not the MLS Riders conclusion. <laughs> right, MLS Riders, I love y'all. I, lo- I love y'all. But I swear to God, I've seen Pep Guardiola and like Greg Berhalter in a sentence too many times. We got to chill out, guys. Armand, like, I deliberately did not make that comparison in my article today. Okay, and that and uh, you know what, Joseph, you're like the, the the first person I've heard. Everyone's like, this is his free call. It's just so. Well, no, I ain't says Guardiola esque, but everyone's saying this too much. Burhalter Pep comparisons. Let's temper our expectations a little bit. Let's uh, let's go with uh, uh, I don't know, Patrick Vieira. Wait, a little a little bit better, you know. Patrick you know, what? I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking, you know. Now you're just searching man- for names. Some Arsene Wenger. Bald manager. Bald Arsene manager. Wenger. No, no, he's not bald. No, he's not, he's not bald. bald. He's not bald. I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, Zinedine Zidane. <laughs> All right, man. Like, I'm, I'm going to throw a red flag on that. I was comparing to a kind of MLS guy. I kind of went up a little bit. But, you know. Okay. Goes um, I'm down. On a more serious note, we, t- we talked about Greg Berhalter's system. And we'll talk about what it means with the European players later on. But let's talk about individual performances. Were there a couple players, guys, that you thought had a really good game in the sense of maybe they they have a chance to make an impact here going forward with Greg Berhalter as as the manager? Or or were there names that, you know, struggled that you say, you know what, once the European players come in, you know, they're not gonna see light of day on this national team Joseph you want to get this first sure yeah I'll take I'll just take two guys um I I really enjoyed uh Walker Zimmerman's performance as that sort of right center back or you know I guess part partly in a back three and partly in a back four I think he was the most aggressive of the defenders outside of Nick Lima in terms of his willingness to to pass forward and try to break break Panama's lines with his passing so I appreciated that and then obviously he got that goal as well um, he's always a monster in the air uh, when he gets in the box on set pieces or, or on that cross like uh, like the one Lima delivered. And then the other one for me, uh, I really enjoyed. I guess this is two people, but uh, both the number eights or the number tens, whatever you want to call them, Christian Roldan and Jordi Mihaljevic. I think they were they were excellent in their positioning, which I think had been clearly communicated to them the specific spots that they needed to occupy. Mihaljevic was active, uh, making runs in behind. Roldan was good uh, with the ball at his feet, sometimes a little bit too assertive probably on his own, but I think that's you'd rather have that than too passive. So I really enjoyed both of their performances as well. What about you, Armand? Uh, I'll give you two names as well. Uh, you know, the downside of that performance, if I'm Kellen Costa watching, it, is Roldan's performance. You know, I can, you know, Berhalter said the, that two number 10s quote, and it really throws me off. But I mean, Roldan as a, I guess, Box to box was pretty was really good. I mean, as well. I mean, I don't know if he got de- as much defensively, but you know what he gave. You know, going forward, those late runs. Uh, I think Roldan has a future with his national team, and I think that's pretty amazing to say. You know, I think especially um, 
you know, he's been developing with the Sounders and whatnot. And I think it's awesome to see Roldan, you know, finally get a chance to the national team. And, you know, I'm going to go with a, a little bit of a hot sports take. Uh, people hate on uh, Giassi Zardes. But I think he did the job that Burhalter wants from his fours in a system. Because, um, and I, I mentioned this once before, I'll mention it again. American Soccer Analysis, great website. Uh, Harrison Crow showed me a statistic that, you know, talked about how Zardes wasn't as much involved in the build-up play for uh, Columbus. And, you know, we kind of saw that a little bit. Uh, he was good in that combo play. And I think he's a fine forward in that role. I didn't think he had the best performance, but I think he had a good, solid performance that, you know, can put him into a picture of, hey, I mean, people hate on him for his first touch and everything like that. But look, I think he had a good, solid performance, you know, at least spark a little bit of a conversation of, hey, he did his role the right way. And I think the most important thing with Burhalter's system is, do you know your role? If you know your role and you know your specific instructions, Burhalter is going to like you and this team is going to succeed. I don't think it's as much about individual talent as it is as KYR, you know, know your role, know, know your personnel, know how, you, know how you're going to be used within the system. I think Zardes understand, understands that well. And he showed it that night. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I, I didn't necessarily agree upon first viewing, and then I went back and talked with a couple of people. And I think I think Zardes performed his job. He knows his role, like you were saying. He can stretch the back line. His movement is pretty good. Uh, the other the other uh, central midfielders and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think overall it was a, it was a pretty decent performance from Zardes. What did we make of Michael Bradley's performance there in the middle of the park? Oh, yeah, because you really want to go there, huh? Um, you know, the most polarizing figure on Twitter, U.S. Men's National Team Twitter hates him. Uh, everyone else, a lot of people were saying he was very good. You know, look, your alternative is Will Trapp in that spot. I think we know what we can get from Will Trapp. I think the experience Bradley provides on the pitch for a very young team is still important. And I think I, I said on the, on the show a few weeks back that you know, seeing Bradley in that closer role would be ideal for the future. Uh, I think Bradley still has a role with the national team. I think he had a pretty good performance, but uh, let's throw the let's hit the brakes on you know talking about his performance being marvelous or outstanding against the against a team that you know Bradley should be amazing and mar- marvelous against his Panama's C team. You know, this is a guy who's played at Roma. You know, he's played the highest level in MLS in the Concacaf Champions League. This is Panama C team. This is nothing for Michael Bradley. Um, but, I mean, I thought he played pretty well. Some of the hate towards him, you know, there's still animosity from missing the World Cup, and as there should be. But I still think as a role, I think he played really well that night. Yeah, and Armand, I want to be, I want to be careful in terms of making that caveat for Bradley's performance, uh, saying, you know, we expect him to perform to perform well and to be capable against a, a Panama, a weak Panama team. Uh, I think we need to make that caveat for, for every player and even for the system in general. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm willing, especially since I'm, I'm more bullish on, I am pretty bullish on, on the, uh, the overall tactical uh, adjustments that Brawlter made in the system in general. I'm willing to say that Bradley performed well and, and to let him sort of move on to the next game and see if he can offer that against Costa Rica. And then, you know, if he performs well, then maybe we may see him again in March and stuff like that, which is interesting because I, I think, I can't remember for sure, the last time we talked, 
I think I was ready to jump off the Bradley train pretty pretty firmly. Um, but you know, it works as magic, and here we are. I mean, this guy goes from being the captain of the U.S. men's national team on the verge of qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. Fails. Goes on to win MLS Cup with Toronto. Screws himself with a PK that gets sent to Jupiter in the Champions League final against Chivas. Then he gets all this hate. He loses the captaincy to a dude who's played, I think, what, one other U.S. national game? It was a second? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it's like a second game. It was Aaron Long's second game. Yeah. Yeah. He is the most polarizing figure in U.S. soccer. This bold guy. Ibrahimovic calls him this philosopher when he should shut up and play. He has carried himself well. I think a performance like yesterday still puts his name on on the team sheet for Greg Berhalter and gives him a moment to pause before his name fully gets erased or fully gets put in, I'm done, we're moving on to the next generation of players. Bradley, whether we like it or not, has some sort of role. It might not be for the 2022 World Cup, but within the next 18 months, he still has a role. So get used to seeing him around. And a performance like that yesterday, I think, only helps him. So it'll be intriguing to see, especially with the Gold Cup, when there's something to play for, whether or not you think it's that big of something, but it's still something to play for. I think his leadership is going to be key there. But we'll see. I mean, Bradley has done everything he can to keep his name on the score sheet or on the team sheet. And it, it, it's a name that I think will intrigue U.S. soccer for the next 18 months. And I think this is good for U.S. soccer to have a polarizing figure like this. It's like when Landon Donovan got left off the 2014 World Cup roster by uh, Klinsman. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is with Michael Bradley is, I mean, what at, at that role, what other option do you really have? Because, I mean... I know we want to talk about European players, but I kind of want to, I guess, help segue into that by, you know, talking about what other options they have. I mean, European-wise, I don't know if you're going to put Weston McKinney there. I think maybe better more as an eight. Um, if we're going to put Tyler Adams at that right wing, center mid, slash whatever role, who else do you have? Um, am, I, am I forgetting anyone, Joseph, or is it a person like Will Trapp? I think... I think we're probably looking at Will Trapp and Michael Bradley for the for the near future at least. So I agree, the options are are pretty limited right now. Like potentially, uh, I mean, potentially a Keaton Parks if he can get if he can you know, get playing time and you know get in that six role. But I don't even think he's good at that six. I think he's better at the eight. So I mean, what other option? I don't see another you know really good option. I mean, obviously things can change. We I mean, what we're three years away from the World Cup. Right now, I do not, unless I'm forgetting someone, which I feel like I am, but I feel like I'm not either. It's one of those weird situations. I feel like we're just talking about Bradley and Will Trap, and it's just like, I mean, Bradley is a better Will Trap experience. What what else do people want? And I'm gonna put on my tinfoil hat here for a second and say that you know if if Bradley becomes uh, if he stops being useful to Berhalter and to the system. 
and Will Trap isn't is deemed not enough, or is, Will Trap is deemed uh, a worse Michael Bradley with less experience, and Chris Durkin maybe is is the up and coming guy who's not ready yet. Then maybe we just see you know a different interpretation of the six. Maybe we see a guy like Tyler Adams at the six performing. Let me say this: I don't think any part of me says that Tyler Adams couldn't perform Michael Bradley's role from last night. If you oh, I agree. To. I so, agree. So I agree. So I mean, then you can talk about well, you know, if that's not his best position, is that is that useful? But it wouldn't surprise me to see if if there's just a complete lack of number sixes in that Bradley style. It wouldn't surprise me to see that that position either become irrelevant for Berhalter or to shift in a way that fits another personal, uh, another positional style. So I don't know. That's just another thought on it. But I agree. It's Bradley's role is interesting now because there's such a lack of other players that are like him, and you know he is that polarizing figure. So there's always going to be the storylines. I, I mean, other options you're talking about is like Russell Canoes and. Uh... Uh, Danny Williams, Chris Durkin. I mean, Durkin and Canales have, I say Canales, Canales, excuse me, have potential, but they're not there yet. They're not there yet. And you know what? You can you can say whatever youth movement, whatever. Look, Bradley's experience throughout the camps help. They help. I talked to Reggie Can after one of the camps and Michael Bradley helped him. You know, transition. You know, you know, get his first, when he got his first cap. All these things, and you. I feel like a guy with experience is a little underrated. I mean, sure, he's older, but you can't just throw the kitchen sink and be like, all right, man, go have fun. We saw we saw them do that against Italy, and we saw that happened. looked terrible. looked awful. To me, yeah, my, uh, Steven's right. We're Michael Bradley in the foreseeable future. If people like it or not, Burhalter has said nothing to make me think otherwise that we're not going to see him. And unless you want to see uh, more of Will Trapp, which is – Kind of a Michael Bradley light, if you ask me. We're going to see more of Michael Bradley, and I don't think it's an issue. And you know what? If he's a polarizing figure, let you know, let him try to uh, be a lion that doesn't care about the opinion of the sheep, as he said in his own famous words. <laughs> yep. Sheeps and what? Lions? Sheeps and lions. We'll never forget that. Yeah, we'll something like that. always remember Michael a... Bradley about sheeps and lions. What, what, a, what a comment. God, that guy. Talk about uh, talk, talk about polarization. That guy still. When I hear Michael Bradley, I generally want to punch a, a hole in the wall. You know, sheep's and lions. God. Anyway, um, guys, Greg Berhalter began a system here. He has a system now. When we start to see the real European players come in, how do you think this system's going to take shape? Has he put out a foundation in which we're going to start to see familiarity? with how this U.S. team is going to play going forward? Or do you think this was him spending the last three weeks working on these players, rolling something out, and we'll see some sort of change against Costa Rica? And then, you know, once we do have an official friendly uh, in the FIFA window, things are going to be, again, all all the way redone. I'm going to hop in here. Yeah, I think... I think it's going to be a little bit of both, right? So I think the basic principles that Berhalter uh, teaches in his training sessions and we can see on the field are going to remain consistent. I think we're going to see um, some some element of vertical rotation from the outside players. So you know maybe in one instance the the center mid is occupying one vertical channel, and the next instance he's occupying a different one. Things like that. I think I think we'll see somewhat of a similar setup, but. 
then again, I think based on the personnel, Berhalter would be foolish not to sort of adapt what he does specifically uh, to fit to fit the roster he has. So if he doesn't have a fullback like we were talking about earlier that he thinks can can tuck in and be effective as as sort of a central midfielder at times, then then maybe we won't see that. Maybe we'll see DeAndre Yedlin if if that's the right back staying wide and you know and that adjusts how the rest of that right hand side plays. So I think it's going to be a little bit of both. I think we're going to see some similarity and some principles remain consistent. But at the same time, I think I think we definitely will see adjustments from one camp to the next. Uh, I hate to agree with Joseph. I'm agree with him here. Um, but I do feel like he really wants to go with that uh, fullbacks being central. I know it's one small tactical thing that we want to talk about because it's it just pops out because it's such a – you know, it's it's not something you see every day when you see the fullbacks. You only see it on NBC on Saturdays when Guardiola is playing against uh, Burnley or something mm-hmm. like that. When you have Delph and uh, freaking uh, I'm trying to remember the other fullback, I can't. But you have you know Fabian Delph and Kyle, Kyle Walker. Walker. Kyle Walker, there you go. I'm the city is my favorite team. I can't remember their freaking players. Come on, man. <laughs> um, you know, tucking in. I think Berhalter really wants to implement that. And you know what? If what I I'm I'm looking at the European, you know, I'm looking at the roster. I'm looking at you know the pool, the entire pool. I don't see anyone that really has that. I really don't, and that's kind of scary. You know, like are, are, is there gonna be fullbacks that continuously you know play for national team, or is Greg gonna be like, hey, look, you need to have the technical ability to play in the midfield, control the ball. And not just be, you know, like a DeAndre Yedlin being very athletic, very strong, going up and down the pitch very fast. But now you're in the middle. Can you do that with DeAndre Yedlin? It's a bunch of questions that you got to ask. But like I said at the beginning of this pod, I believe we haven't seen the best of, and this is obvious, the best of the system because there's so many better players in the pool. We're going to see, you know, a guy like John Brooks come in. You know, we're going to see a guy like Christian Pulisic play that uh, Jordi Mihailovic role, potentially. Uh, and we're going to see that, and we're going to see how it's going to work out. We're going to see Josh Sargent potentially at the forward role or Josie Altador. Hell, we're going to see all these different options coming in and out. I think Burhalter needs to adjust, but I think – Joseph hit the hammer on the head here. The basic principles will stay there. So whatever those basic principles are, you know, high pressing, get the ball back, energy, uh, potentially that that fullback, you know, being more inverted. Those key principles, we're going to see those. We might see some wrinkles somewhere else, such as in the attack and uh, potentially in the midfield. Maybe instead of two number 10s, we should have one number 10. And maybe some common 6-8-10 rotation. That's uh, how I look at things as Burhalter adding the European players into the mix. So the next match is Saturday, February 2nd, day before the Super Bowl, against Costa Rica, 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox, Unimas. Uh, fellas, any expectations going into this match? Do we expect Burhalter to kind of get a new set of players out there on the field just to get them some game time? I I don't think we'll see a whole new set of players. No, I think we'll see a little bit of rotation, uh, maybe three or four guys uh, changed out from one or from, from Panama to Costa Rica. But I think we'll see a lot of, a lot of similar guys. At least that's my expectation. Could be wrong. 
Uh, I'm gonna go with you're gonna see. I, I'm I'm not sure if we'll see the same guys. To be honest, Josefa, I think you know Reggie Cannon. I think we'll get minutes. Um, I think when Nick Lima started there, I think it was a given, and you know Reggie didn't play either. I wouldn't be surprised to see Will Trap start as well. Maybe Jonathan Lewis gets some extended time. Maybe I'm saying exactly what you're saying, but I'm just thinking about it too hard. Uh, but I, I do expect some some rotation. And the thing I'm specifically looking for is to see what principles stay. Because whatever principles, you know, continue to stay, you know, maybe maybe Burhalter changes the entire system to try out something new. But there has to be some key principles in place that stay, right? The high press. Um, whether, you know, the forward gets more involved in the buildup and whatnot. The two number 10s, are these going to be principles that we see game in and game out? Are these going to be the forte of Burhalter's U.S. Men's National Team system? Or are we going to see something completely different with Burhalter experimenting with something brand new? Um, I mean, that's what I'm looking for. I mean, it's, it's a game where I feel you just have to watch the first 45 minutes to understand what you, what you, where you're going to see from the match. But I mean, outside of that, uh, I'm not sure if I'm expecting much, to be honest with you. It's fun to think about these things and it's fun that it's fun to think about these things again. So if that's my only takeaway from this game against Panama and my only preview aspect for Costa Rica, I'm... I'm interested to see these players, these MLS players that are not, many of them are not first choice. I'm interested to see them perform, which says a lot. And then I'm also interested, interested to see, you know, like Armand is saying, what, what Berhalter does. So for me, that's, that's sort of a small win here. Well, there you have it. U.S. men's national team back, I guess, in the right direction, pointing in the right direction. I think that's fair fair to say. Listeners, let us know. Greg Berhalter next. Pep Guardiola. I don't think we said that on today's show, though. Follow Joseph Lowry, Joe and Cleats. It's no, it's, you changed your profile pic, didn't you, Joseph? I did. Handle's still the same, but the picture's different. It's there really me, guys. Joe Shout out, Cleats. Joseph. No Had- more Cleat as his uh, picture anymore. So huge, huge... Uh, Huge, uh, big J journalist moment right there for Joseph. Making moves, guys. Catch his work on The Athletic at Armand Kofi. Armand, Pro Soccer USA covering FC Dallas. I'm Steven Jodder, and we'll be back next weekend with some new content. Until next time, take care. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360 degree sound, so you hear studio sound on the road. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade never stop arriving. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. Let's say you make it to the top. What's next? Relish in the glory of your accomplishments? Okay, sure, for a minute, but then you move forward. Take the 2021 Escalade. Cadillac's newest arrival is more than just a celebration of iconic luxury. It's the most technologically advanced Escalade ever. Because arriving is just the beginning. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving.